My introduction is actually about Les Mis. I've never read Les Mis. Maybe you have. It's 3,000 pages. That's a lot of reading. Uh, but my wife has read it. She's a huge fan. And she's also a fan of the 2012 Tom Hooper-directed movie with Hugh Jackman. And she will fight you if you say that Russell Crowe was a bad casting for Javert. His rigidity is part of his character. He's the lawman. That's the point. So anyway, I haven't seen, read the book. I've seen the movie. And having seen the movie, I can understand why it is such a massively popular story, why so many consider the novel to be perhaps one of the greatest novels ever written. And it really boils down to the simple fact that our hearts long for a redemption story. We long for redemption to be our story. And the foundation of that redemption in Les Mis is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Hugo himself says this about the book. The book which the reader has before him at this moment is from one end to the other in its entirety and details, a progress from evil to good, from injustice to justice, from falsehood to truth, from night to day, from appetite to conscience, from corruption to life, from bestiality to duty, from hell to heaven, from nothingness to God. It's a redemption story. And you hear the foundation of that redemption again, forgiveness, in one of the first scenes of the movie. If you've seen it, you know Jean Valjean has been uh, paroled from prison, but he has nowhere to go. He has these yellow papers he has to carry with him everywhere, reminding everyone he's a convict, he's a dangerous man, and so he can't find work, and the inn won't give him a place to stay. Not even the jail will shelter him. He's completely destitute, and the only place where he is received, where he is welcomed, where he is cared for is the church. He goes to the church and it's the bishop who actually welcomes him. It's the bishop who has a meal prepared for him, who gives him a place to stay. And Jean Valjean repays that kindness by stealing the table silver and vanishing into the night. In the morning when the police drag him back to the church, drag him to the bishop, they say he had the audacity to suggest that this was a gift given to him by the bishop. And the bishop looks at the policeman and says, it's true. And he takes two silver candlesticks and looks at Jean Valjean and says, but my friend, you left so early. You forgot I gave these also. Would you leave without the best? It's this act of sheer grace, of undeserved mercy, of forgiveness that completely transforms Jean Valjean that sets the stage for his character in the rest of the film and the rest of the novel. It's because he was forgiven. He says this in the movie as he's reflecting on this forgiveness that he's received. I'm reaching, but I fall, and the night is closing in as I stare into the void, the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. You hear in those words a theology of baptism. The old man put to death new resurrection life birthed out of forgiveness, birthed out of the forgiveness we have in Christ Jesus. Because of him, we can live a new story. Our story can be one of redemption and forgiveness. And I've already told you, Psalm 103 is one of my absolute favorite texts in the entire Bible. It just reminds us how full of forgiveness our God is. It reminds us the heart of the gospel. I was getting, getting choked up just as we were singing this morning as Connor was reading this passage because I love it so much. We're continuing in our sermon series this morning. 
reminding ourselves the Psalms were the original prayer book of God's people. The Psalms were the original prayer book of Jesus. And when we pray these prayers, our, our devotional life is freed up to love, to worship, to serve, to obey God more fully. And this morning, we are being freed up to see how gracious our God is. So if you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 103. We're gonna see three things in our text this morning. First, more than anything, you need forgiveness. More than anything in all the world, you need God's forgiveness. Second, Despite all the fears and the doubts of our hearts, God is abundantly forgiving. And third, when you have experienced the forgiveness of the Lord, you can't help but be changed. You can't help but live a new life of gratitude. And again, this morning, I've memorized Psalm 103. I'm probably gonna stumble over parts of it. This is the longest one we've had all summer. But man, it was a treat to, to memorize this Psalm, to put it on my heart. And I encourage you as well to put this Psalm in your mind, on your heart, and see how it just grows encouragement in you, grows love for the Lord in you. So Psalm 103, I memorized it in the ESV, beginning in verse one, of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not treat us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, his mighty ones who obey his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, O you all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The first thing we see, thanks. <laughs> I don't do it for applause. I do it because I want you to see how beautiful, how good it is to have the word of God on your heart, how transformative it can be. And the first thing you see in this text is that you need forgiveness more than anything, more than anything in all the world. 
David gives one of his most exuberant praises to God in this psalm because of his forgiveness. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. We often view that word soul in this kind of Western way. We view soul as, as this immaterial, spiritual part of ourself. That's not what David is saying. Soul in the Hebrew mind is simply a living thing. It's connected to the Hebrew word for the throat. It's the idea that you have breath. In fact, that God gave you his breath and breathed life into you. And so David is saying, every part of me that's alive, worship God. And then he says his inner parts, literally his, his guts, his entrails, his heart, his lungs, his stomach, everything that has vitality and energy in life, worship God. We might say that David is saying, God, I want to worship you with every fiber of my being. Why? Because with God, there is grace. Because with God, there is forgiveness. And he lists a whole series of benefits. Forgiveness from iniquity healing from disease, redemption from the pit, crowning with steadfast love and mercy, satisfaction with good, renewal like the eagle, but all of them are not, it's not a list really, it's actually all results from that forgiveness. It's all about that forgiveness. And you see it really clearly when you look at the inverse, what would our life look like without the God of forgiveness? Without his love, his mercy, his grace? Well, our life would be marked by iniquity. That's not a word we commonly use today, but it simply means guilt. We would be marked by guilt. We would stand before the judge guilty and condemned. Because of our rebellion, our sin, we would stand before the Holy One covered in our guilt. Apart from the God of forgiveness, we would be riddled with disease. In Exodus 15, God says this to his people, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. You hear this connection between obedience and health, between disobedience and disease. And I'm not trying to tell you some kind of mechanistic connection between your sin and the hardships of your life. I'm not telling you this morning that every physical ailment you are experiencing is due to disobedience. There's a whole book of the Bible that's largely about that. Go read Job. God doesn't work in that mechanistic way. But what is he communicating? There are real consequences for our sin. Sin really does ravage us, ruin us, destroy us. It is like a disease sapping your strength, killing your, your livelihood, killing all of who you are. And without God's forgiveness, you are riddled with disease. Third, he redeems us from the pit. This one's straightforward. The pit is, is Sheol, the place of death. The wages of sin is death. Apart from God's forgiveness, we deserve death. Apart from God's forgiveness, we deserve to be separated from God for eternity. Apart from God's forgiveness, that's where we're going. And even now, apart from God's forgiveness, we are the walking dead. Fourth, instead of a crown of mercy and love, apart from God's forgiveness, the only crown we have is our shame. When Adam and Eve committed the very first sin, ate of the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of, good, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they were filled with shame. They had been naked and unashamed with one another and immediately they hide from each other and hide from God because they are overwhelmed by their shamefulness. And apart from God's forgiveness, all we have is shame and fear. 
Apart from God's forgiveness, we are not satisfied with good. We are dissatisfied. We are hungry. We are thirsty. We are longing. We were made to be satisfied with God's perfect righteousness. We were made to be satisfied by knowing and loving and walking with him, but we're much more like the description from Jeremiah 2.13 without God's forgiveness. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We are thirsty, we are desperate, we are longing, and we can't be filled without God's forgiveness. And finally, we are not like the eagle who's renewed, who molts her feathers in the spring and mounts up with youthfulness and new feathers in the summertime. Rather, without God's forgiveness, we go from decay to decay. We're not renewed and restored. We're actually defined by our brokenness and our woundedness. Don't you see, without God's forgiveness, you are guilty. You are diseased. You are dead. You are shameful. You are longing and empty and broken. And if you are forgiven, you are made holy and you are made healthy and you are given resurrection life and you are crowned with love and mercy and you are satisfied and you are renewed. There's nothing you need in all the world more than you need God's forgiveness. So what are you pursuing? What do you want why are you here this morning? To make God like you? <laughs> to do the good deed you're, you're supposed to do? Or because you long to receive pardon from the God of mercy and grace? What are you seeking with your life? Is it fame, wealth, power, sex? None of it matters if you don't have God's forgiveness. None of it means anything. You're as good as the walking dead. Are you seeking the mercy of the Lord? Are you seeking his forgiveness? And there's two main obstacles that keep us from receiving God's forgiveness. And the first is our pride. St. Augustine, speaking on our passage, said, Beware the head that is too swollen for the crown. Beware the head that can't receive this crown of mercy because you think you're a good person. Because you think you can earn or achieve God's love because you think that God owes you because you've lived a good life. It's nonsense. You can't earn God's love. You can't achieve it. You can't make him love you by the way that you live your life. You can only receive it as a free gift. If you carry anything more than nothing to God, you've brought too much. Humble yourself. But the second major reason that we can't receive God's forgiveness is because of our despair. We long for it. We desperately want it. We see that I need nothing more than God's forgiveness, but we don't believe that it's for us. There's no way God could love me. There's no way God could forgive me. So turn back to the text, verses 6 through 18. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made his ways known to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor does he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The first thing we see in our text this morning is that we need forgiveness more than anything in all the world. We need it. And secondly, we see that despite all the fears, all the doubts of our hearts, God is abundantly forgiving. David in verses six through eight is drawing the Israelite mind back to an important moment in their history. In verse 6, he's reminding them that God worked righteousness and justice for them when they were oppressed in Egypt. He brought them out of slavery. In verse 7, he's reminding them that he, he covenanted with them. He made himself known to them when he gave them his law at Mount Sinai and Moses was their leader. And in verse 8, he quotes almost verbatim from Exodus 34, 6. When God revealed his character to Moses immediately after the golden calf incident. Immediately after the people of God reject him, rebel against him, choose to worship a false God, then God says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. That's who he is. And so David is just expanding upon God's own self-revelation, who he is, what is his character, Forgiveness flows from his character. And David focuses on three pieces. God's love is steadfast. God's love is compassionate. God's love is patient. So first, his steadfast love. Why can God not stay angry with us when we sin? Why does God not deal with us according to our sin? Why does God not repay us according to our iniquities? Because his love is greater than the heavens are high above the earth. His love is steadfast. The word steadfast love in Hebrew is just one word. And it's perhaps one of the most important words in the entire Bible. It's hesed. And it simply means God's steadfast love. The love that he gives to us with covenantal faithfulness, the love that he gives to us unshakingly, unswervingly, or I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's God's hesed. That's how God loves us. And so that's how God can look at us. We who change, who break our promises, who fail to keep covenant, who are constantly turning away from God. And he can remain the same. He can remain faithful to us. He remains steadfast. The second is that God is compassionate. How can God take our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west? 
Or as Jeremiah 31, 34 says, God remembers our sins no longer. There's a Puritan by the name of Thomas Watson who talks about that verse and said, God passes an act of oblivion. He forgets your sin. Or Micah 7, 19. God has cast our sins into the sea. Again, Watson says, not as cork, but as lead. How can God do that? How can he rid us of our sin? Take it so far away from us forever. Because he is a compassionate father. Again, the word in Hebrew for compassion can be translated as tender affection. Deep love graciousness and mercy. Why can God take our sins away? Because he's like a father that can't give up on us. He's like a father who has tender affection for us, deep love, unending grace and mercy for his children. That's why he can take our sins away. And finally, David focuses in on his patience. God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows he created us. He knows that we are frail, that we are weak, that we are shot through with all kinds of infirmities, that we cannot stand up under the weight of his law, that we are constantly sinning and failing him. We are full of weakness and limitation, but there is no limitation in God's love. There is no end in sight When you look at God's love, it is from everlasting to everlasting. It never ends. The phrase, God is slow to anger, is is kind of humorous in the Hebrew. It means literally, God is long in the nose. The idea is that when you get angry, your face gets flushed. And God doesn't get angry quickly because he's he's long in the nose. It takes him a long time for his face to get flushed. God is patient with us. We keep falling into the same stupid sins over and over and over again. And his mercy, his patience, his love is always bigger, always bigger than us. He never runs out of patience with us. And this is so hard to believe. It is so hard to swallow because we have this image of God that is not like what David has said. We have this image of God in our heart He's just waiting to pounce on us. That he's so disappointed with us that he's angry with us. He doesn't want anything to do with us. He's shaking his head. Can't believe we fell into the same sin again and again. We don't have this image of his incredible mercy and grace. Do you see the gap between who God really is and what you often think of him? God is full of of steadfast love, compassion, and patience. But there's one more reason, one more reason why we can be so confident that God is abundantly forgiving. The New Testament agrees with the old, that God is steadfast, that God is compassionate, that God is is patient, but the New Testament also agrees with the Old Testament that God is just. God does not overlook sin. He does not give it a free pass. And God is just to punish sin on the cross of Christ. He pays the penalty himself. Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And do you know what that means? 
There has been a glorious exchange. You stand in Jesus' place because he took your place on the cross. And so why can we say that God is steadfast in his love for us, that his love never changes no matter what we do, that he doesn't deal with us according to our sins because he dealt with Jesus according to your sins and he deals with you according to Jesus' righteousness. Why can we say with such confidence that God is a father full of compassion and tender affection for us? Because on the cross, Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was not treated as a son. He was treated as an enemy so that you might be received as a beloved son or daughter of the king. Why can we say with such confidence that God's patience is always bigger than our failings, that his love is from everlasting to everlasting? Because the only one in the universe who is truly everlasting in himself, who is infinite, became dust and dirt and grass that he might redeem us from our sins. Don't you see it's Jesus who took your iniquity who took your disease, who took your death, who took your shame, who took your longing and emptiness, who took your brokenness, that he might give you his holiness, that he might give you his health, that he might give you his resurrection life, that he might give you his glory, that he might give you his satisfaction, that he might give you his renewed life. It is because of Jesus Christ that we can have such great confidence in the mercy, the forgiveness of God. And so if you are despairing this morning, longing for forgiveness, longing for pardon, longing for mercy, longing to be cleansed, look to the cross of Christ. There's no other place where your heart can be confirmed in God's goodness for you, where you can be so certain that God really is steadfast, compassionate, patient towards you now and forever. Look back at the text one more time, verses 17 through 22. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The first thing we see in our text is that we need forgiveness more than anything else in all the world. The second thing we see is that despite all the doubts and the fears of our hearts, God is abundantly forgiving. And finally, we see that if you have received the forgiveness of the Lord, you can't help but be changed. You can't help but live a life of gratitude. And gratitude shows up in two ways in our text, obedience and praise. If you have received the forgiveness of the Lord, you will fear him. 
You will obey his commandments. You will keep his covenants. Not because if you obey God, he'll continue to love you. That flies in the face of everything I've been saying this morning. You cannot earn, cannot achieve, cannot keep God's love upon you because of your obedience. You can only receive it because of what Jesus achieved for you. No, your life is meant to be a grateful response. When you have been forgiven, when you have been restored, your heart is to be changed. I've often put it this way for the teenagers of our church. Unconditional love conditions you. Unconditional love, love that cannot be earned, that cannot be deserved, that is given precisely to those who do not deserve it, changes your heart. It conditions you into the kind of person that loves God back. And so if you don't have a heart that longs to love God, that longs to praise him, that delights to please him, that wants to obey him, then maybe you need to go back and look at points one and two of my sermon. See how desperately you actually need his forgiveness so you can really grasp how great a gift it is. See the character of God in full display on the cross of Christ so that you can really understand how magnificent his love for you is. Because it's going to change you if you really have received it. And then secondly, praise. Why should all the angels of heaven, all the hosts of heaven, all of God's creation in every place of his rule praise God because of his forgiveness? Because of the forgiveness he gives us in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we are meant to thank God for his mercy. We remind ourselves of this when we come to the table. It is right, it is our duty and our joy always and everywhere to praise you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. But chiefly, we are bound to praise you for the glorious resurrection of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He was our Passover lamb. By his death, he destroyed death. And by his rising to life again, he won for us everlasting life. Do you hear it? Our worship every week is in response to the forgiveness he purchased for us. Our worship every week is in response to this most fundamental, most amazing gift, God's grace. So I don't know what is keeping you this morning from receiving that forgiveness what's keeping you this morning from delighting in God's forgiveness, what's keeping you this morning from seeing your life transformed by God's forgiveness. But I urge you, come to the table. Look with new eyes on the broken body and the blood shed of our Lord Jesus in love for you. Let it lead you to praise. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are much more like Jean Valjean than we want to admit. We are condemned. We are convicted. We are evil in our hearts and we are destitute without you 
and our hearts are full of hatred and destruction. We go from disease to decay to ruin in our sin. We need your forgiveness, God. And we praise you because you are abundantly forgiving, full of mercy and grace. Lord, help us to humble ourselves, overcome our despair and our doubt by your great love. Bring us into the peace, the joy, the worship of your name through your mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.